It's the end of the world as we know it. That's not only a hit song from the 80s, it's also a hit theme that just seems particularly relevant to the days we're living in. This morning, complete with apocalyptic signs across the skies. My wife Becky sent me this sometime after the killer bees, uh, after COVID, after the grasshopper swarms in Africa, and the riots in our streets. It made me laugh. We're living in some really incredible days. Jesus doesn't leave his followers, when he's there with them, clueless as to what is happening. He also doesn't leave them clueless as to what will happen. And that being said, he doesn't fill them in on every detail. Luke has already shown us uh, different ways Jesus has filled us in on coming events. Way back in chapter 12, uh, he tells them to stay ready. He says, when I go away, I'm going to come back and I want you to be ready, so keep the lights on. In chapter 17, he fills in more of the picture, but it's really still hazy. What we know is it will be a surprise. It will catch people off guard. You know, people get strange talking about the end times, and strange people talk about end times. So church, let me just encourage you as we begin to talk about end times again here in chapter 21, that large doses of humility and curiosity will serve us really, really well. So don't ignore what is to come. Don't bury your head and say, well, who can really know? It just gets weird and argumentative, so let's not talk about it. Let's not do that because the scriptures don't do that. But secondly, Um, Let's not obsess over this. Hear me clearly. Your salvation is not dependent on your eschatology, on your view of end times. Remember the thief on the cross. What was his eschatology? Here it was. Ready? We're all going to die, and I want to be on that guy's team. And you know what Jesus said? A plus, buddy, you're in. That's all he knew. That was all the eschatology that he seemed to have, and Jesus assured him he was good. Since everyone was making, uh, you know, end times charts, uh, you remember, you may remember that uh, back, I think in chapter 17, I decided to make my own end time chart. Here it is. It, it has one main event. It's that Jesus leaves. So a prerequisite to him coming again someday is that he leaves. Well, we know that that has already happened, which means quite simply that today we are as close as we have ever been to the return of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's an exciting thing, and we can rest in that. We are heading into a really important end times passage. But I want you to see it, uh, the end times discussion, as, as for more than just Bible nerds and weird people. The truth is that understanding the times is the work of all Christians everywhere, always. We are called to understand the times. We've been given a key to understanding life as it really is, to grasp beyond the lens of just what's happening on the surface. Now, Jesus is the good doctor. We've been um, playing off that theme, that title, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came on a rescue mission. And he heals in many, many ways, not the least of which is through teaching. 
We talked last week about the idea that resetting a bone, uh, you know, prevents that bone from future long-term pain, but it also, it also reestablishes functionality. That's what resetting a brain does. It does exactly the same thing. It restores functionality and prevents long-term pain. So we've been seeing Jesus teach daily in the temple, and now he's going to take it to the street. He, he teaches in the sanctuary. He teaches in the street. Streets. He's always looking for ways to communicate and teachable moments. And what we're going to see today in the passage is this. He's going to speak of an event that's very, very common and ordinary. It may seem mundane. And he's going to speak of, of, of an event coming, of events coming that are quite abnormal. Anything but mundane. Here's the title for this morning. Just below the surface. Exploring the beauty and danger lurking unseen. As Jesus is teaching in the temple, he's given commentary on what's really going on. He's talking about civil and religious and scriptural authority. These have all been discussed. And Jesus is obliterating the assumptions that people had. He's dismantling conventional wisdom that they've been taught. And he's exposing the experts as preschoolers. Uh, No offense intended to any of you preschoolers, Uh, just that the people who were supposedly in the know, the people out front, the talking heads, the intellectuals, the experts, were actually clueless on much of what was happening. In two different ways today, he shows us how to read the circumstances of life. In the circumstances of life that we'll see, there's both beauty to behold and there's danger to avoid. You know, just as most of the world's life forms live just below the vast oceans that we've not even finished exploring yet, so much of life happens just below the surface. I use the word lurking, which which translated or which defined means this remaining hidden so as to wait in ambush. Now, when you hear the word lurking, usually you think of it in a negative sense. That must be for the danger to avoid. But I think actually it's true that oftentimes beauty is lurking there as well. It's waiting to ambush us. It's waiting waiting to take us by surprise. This amazing upside-down, inside-out kingdom that Jesus is preaching, teaching, living, takes us by surprise so often. Nothing, Nothing is quite what it seems. We are surprised by danger in the seemingly benign, and we are equally amazed at beauty that springs from the mundane and initially the unimpressive. This idea of swimming at the surface, let that be a metaphor this morning for the way we live our life. It's a metaphor for the fact that we are all in uh, sort of contained and confined by time and space. Can't be everywhere at once. Can't live any moment over again or ahead of time. We live in the now, in the present. And that means this, that to see below the surface, either we must get way above the surface. Think of a helicopter that might see a great white shark circling a surfer. The helicopter would see that the surfer's in danger. The surfer's clueless as to what's beneath him. So to see below the surface, we need to get way high above, or with the help of a mask and fins and air, we're able to go below the surface and get a really good look 
at what's going on. Here's the point. We need help to see below the surface. Without revelation, much of what is unseen, much of the life that lives unseen, that's below the surface, is a patchwork of guesses and speculation. So there are things revealed to us from God. We can take those to the bank. There are other things that remain hidden from us. And what people do is they tend to fill in those gaps, religious and irreligious alike, with bold assertions of what is going to happen, and then it doesn't. How does this passage written so long ago link to your life today? Well, here's the thing. There's always more to the story than you know. There's more to other people's story. There's more to your story. There is beauty and danger lurking below you right now. We are dependent on the Savior to make sense of it all. Here's how I'm going to break it up. I'm going to look at one scene that's really mundane and normal. We're going to look for the beauty and the danger. Then we're going to go to another scene that is utterly spectacular. And we'll look for the beauty and the danger. Luke chapter 21, starting in verse one. By the way, if you haven't clicked below, there's a link to the sermon handout. Some of you like to take uh, handwritten notes. That will help you along. It also contains what we call community group questions, which is just a way to sort of interact with the text, apply it to your life, uh, challenge you with some, some questions. So what is really going on during repetitive, normal events? Well, we're going to take a look at a really repetitive, normal event. Luke 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. There's beauty to behold here. Now, this is a really common occurrence that happened in the temple. It's a really common occurrence that happens uh, probably in all faiths, but I can certainly speak for the Christian faith, in churches around the world. That is, people worshiping by bringing gifts. Super common. While many focus on how much they give or how much others give, Jesus draws attention to something else entirely. It's subtle, but it's different. He distinguishes the difference between what is held back, between what is gift, uh, what is kept. So he doesn't focus on giving, he focuses on what is kept. Now the rich gives, but is left with plenty. This poor widow gives, and she is left with nothing. So here's the question. How does this honor God? Does God want his people destitute? Does he want them with nothing to live on? Are we to give all that we have always? The moment we get some income, the moment we get something, we just give it away? God is not impressed with the same things that impress us. For much of us, it's this. How much? How big? How new? How fancy? How eloquent? How influential? 
This is how we choose kings. This is how we choose presidents. This is how we assign value to one another. Let me say this again. God is not impressed with the same things that impress us. If you measure the gift, it's small. If you measure the sacrifice, it's big. And this is what delights the heart of God. King David is chosen against all odds. We talked about him last week. He's the hero of heroes. King David is chosen against all odds. He's the youngest. He's the least. He's actually the forgotten. And he's just the right person for the job. Why? He's the least impressive of all of the seven brothers. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the prophet comes and he says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, the prophet, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There is the key. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord sees the heart. Jesus saw what most missed, the heart of this worshiper. This is the essence of Christian worship. This is what uh, it, it, it amounts to, being satisfied in God, trusting and treasuring Him above all else, savoring His beauty and activity in our lives, in our hearts. Do you see how this is below the surface? There are outward things that show this, but the essence of it is below the surface. So the focus is not on the amount given, not on perfect words, not on singing in tune or in time, or even dressing to impress. Worship is not about how much Bible has been read, memorized, or understood. It's not about attendance. It's not about buildings. It's not about budget. We worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. This is the simple beauty to behold here. Truthful, spiritual, trusting worship. That's what Jesus sees. That's what delights him. Some would, see the, some would see the widow as taking this huge risk by not saving money for herself. She may see it as just the opposite. Maybe the huge risk is playing it safe and leaning on yourself and depending on yourself. I'm reading through a devotional uh, sort of each day of the year, looking at a different hymn from days gone by, and it's by John Fisher, and he writes this in one of these. He says, real faith involves immediacy and risk. My wife, Becky, has had a love for those who don't have a family since she was in junior high. Many in our church family have taken on the faith step of becoming foster parents, becoming adoptive parents. And talk about holding nothing back. That's a huge investment. It's a huge question mark on the front end. God, we're, we're going to be moving toward trauma in the lives of children. In fact, we're going to be inviting it into our home, into our everyday life. That sounds really, really scary on the front end. Uh, adoption is talked about all the time. Yesterday, we're cleaning the garage. We thought, what would be more fun on a 100-degree day than to put ourselves in a confined, hot environment and clean? So that's what we did. My little nine-year-old, he was born in Ethiopia, just for context, we're chit-chatting and talking, and he says to me this, he says, you know, Dad, um, I'm going to adopt. 
and that's not news to me. We talk about this all the time. I go, oh, okay. And he said, yeah, I'm going to adopt from China. I go, oh, cool. And he goes, yeah, probably Australia. And I go, awesome. And he's like, and maybe Scotland. So, so here's what's really, really cool. I can't wait to see my grandkids. Who knows how God will sort of or- orchestrate it all. Uh, but we already have this really cool hodgepodge mix of fruit salad in our home. And what will the family tree look like a generation from now? I bring that up because of this. With no intentionality, we had conversations about adoption while working in the garage. Um, and then it got so hot, we just decided to come to my office, the only place in San Jose I can go to get air conditioning. And we sat and watched some home movies and we watched the home movie of bringing Eli and Kaya home from Ethiopia. And as we're watching this, um, I am just taken back in my mind. We had already adopted our beautiful daughter, Cassie. And Becky, a woman of faith, was holding nothing back. She said, Dave, I think it's time to adopt again. And this time we should do too. I was not there yet. I am also a person of faith. But I was holding back. I had fears arise, like, it went amazing with Cassie. What if it doesn't go amazing the next time? God led his son, his child, by the hand, moment at a time, faith step at a time, toward a place of wholeheartedly making a decision to move forward with adopting Eli and Kaya from Ethiopia. In the video... Uh, I, I, there, there's a song playing in the background that I put that, that still just spoke so powerfully to the moment we were introduced to what would become our beloved, precious children. And here's, here's the lyric. It's from a Bebo Norman song. It says, here goes nothing. Here goes everything. Got to reach for something or you'll fall for anything. Take a breath. Take a step. What comes next, God only knows. But here it goes. That's how that moment felt. We were mid-air of the jump. We had not landed on solid ground yet. We had no idea what was in store for us. I bring up that memory because of this. It fits here for two reasons. One, holding nothing back. But secondly, faithful givers. This widow and her unseen small gift matters. Every penny matters. At the end of the video, I, I dedicated, we, we, we dedicated the video to those who helped make our dreams come true. Many of you are watching right now. You are the extreme givers to, to, to contribute to something that built a future beautiful reality. I'm still grateful and moved for that. In fact, it still is bearing fruit. I bump into people all the time. They go, how on earth can you adopt? Isn't adoption expensive? I say, it's very expensive. How can you afford to adopt when you're not a televangelist and you're living in the Silicon Valley on a single income? How can that, how can that be possible? And I get the chance to tell about an incredibly great, big, generous God who's put me in a great, big, generous family And we together helped build this dream. Each two cents counted toward that being fulfilled. Jesus commends active faith in the first century. Do you know that Jesus still commends active faith in the 21st century? Maybe you've asked yourself this before. How can I tell if I'm really walking by faith or if I'm walking by sight? I don't want to walk by sight. I want to walk by faith. Ask yourself. What is my plan B if God doesn't come through? 
on this decision? What is my contingency? Some people in the name of good planning, good stewardship, good prudence have never trusted for God to provide for them. They are walking by sight. Now hear me really clearly. The Bible teaches putting away money for a rainy day. The Bible teaches forward-looking. The Bible teaches delayed gratification, all of that. But you know what? I think many of us in the West especially are lured into putting so much away for a rainy day that we could survive an entire monsoon season without even breaking a sweat and without ever once calling out to God in desperation. If your prayers are day after day, thank you, God, for blessing me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Give me wisdom of where to steer my resources. Give me wisdom of what location I should build my next barn to store more of my stuff. If that's your prayer life, and it doesn't consist of, God, give me today my daily bread, I would challenge you that you're walking by sight and not by faith. Think about it. Jesus sees below the surface, and he points out to the disciples what I think they might have missed on their own, that a seemingly insignificant widow giving her two cents is huge to the heart of God. Here's an action item. God is honored by our faith. Our trust in him esteems him as the capable, trustworthy, all-sufficient, all-seeing father that he is. Listen to this. When you give and love like you're made of the stuff, like you know there's plenty more love, there's plenty more resources because you know where it's coming from, that esteems God. God is honored by that. So this common event is filled with beauty, but it's also ripe for danger, isn't it? Money can lead to sin. So what is the danger to avoid? The danger to avoid is superficial giving. Riches can make you poor and cause you to build on sand. I think we should, have, we should take special attention as Americans, and specifically many watching are Americans in the Silicon Valley, because we are the oblivious all in this story unless God does a work. We are the oblivious all. We give, and then we might be tempted to pat ourselves on the back, go about our week, and give again and say, yep, I have a regular habit of giving. And if we're honest, we realize it's It's superficial and not sacrificial. Unless God does a work in our heart and severs a love for money, severs a dependence on money as our first and primary uh, resource for sheltering us from the storm, I think we could be the ones in severe danger here. Let me just give you a few thoughts. You can add to this, of course. But here's me giving a few thoughts around superficial giving versus sacrificial giving. Okay, here we go. Uh, superficial giving uh, is done to be seen by man. Uh, sacrificial givers do it to be seen by God. Uh, superficial givers, it costs them little, really. Even if the amount is large, it costs them little. Sacrificial givers, it, gives, it, it costs much. Superficial givers, this fosters fame for their own name. Sacrificial uh, givers, it fosters faith. Superficial givers tend to look for cameras. Are people paying attention? Are my close loved ones seeing I'm doing this? Sacrificial givers look for opportunities. What a difference of what's on the radar. And lastly, superficial givers do it strategically. Sacrificial givers do it joyfully. 
right? Here's the action. The action is this. Give and live generously, and then don't post, tweet, or talk about it. Just go about your day. Let God see it and reward you. There is beauty and danger lurking below the flow of money. Always watch for it. Watch for what's below the surface. Don't naively believe the headlines. Ask God to reveal how to live and give well. All right, that's scene one. That's a really, really common occurrence. Here's part two of this morning. What is really going on during sensational world events? Look at verse five. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? The gospel of Luke is so relevant to our times. If you can't see this, let me see if I can help. I'm going to cover some stuff that's going to get a little technical, a little historical. Put on your thinking caps. Really dial in, okay? Um, and, and, let's, and let's go. First of all, small talk around Jesus tends to get really interesting. Uh, we don't have every conversation recorded of Jesus, of course. But, um, you know, here's, here's some people there. And uh, he's been schooling the most learned, you know, sort of advanced people on the planet in, in their minds. And here they are in conversation, and they're saying, you know, nice temple. Um, you know, love the architectural genius it took to create that, that sense of depth. And your use of stone, wow, that's, that's just really amazing. You know, sort of commenting on the architectural beauty and masterpiece of the temple. Jesus' response, oh yeah, funny thing about that. It's all going to be a pile of rubble. It doesn't matter. Again, God is not impressed with the things that we're impressed with. So what does Jesus do? He takes the conversation and he steers it to more pressing matters. Remember, he doesn't have many hours left on earth before he dies. So this long section that follows, um, we're going to get into it some more in the coming weeks, but it's called the Olivet Discourse. And the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this section of Scripture. And it's called this because uh, basically each day he's teaching the temple, and then at night he would go what's now a suburb of, of, of the temple area of Jerusalem, but it's called the Mount of Olives. So that's where he would retire for the night, and he would go down to the temple each day. We find that in Luke chapter 21, 37. So he's discussing the end of the world as we know it. Here's what's challenging about this section. Jesus is talking about two major events, and they're sort of interspersed like this. One is the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD, and the other one is the return of Christ, which is happening TBD, right? Two big events, and, and it's hard to distinguish at times whether he is talking about immediate destruction and events that are worldwide and life-changing, or longer-term future events. And that's part of the challenge. Remember from last week, though, God is the perfect communicator, and God inspired hard texts. So challenge is neither bad nor easy. Let me give you a quick history lesson. History buffs are like, sweet, I love history in church. Some of you are bummed out. Pay attention, it's really short, and it's important. The quick history lesson is this. Uh, there are certain dates 
that just by saying them cause a huge reaction. Let me, let me try you. Ready? December 7th, 1941. September 11th, 2001. Right? There's two examples. Those are two examples that it's not just a date. It immediately links the date to significant events. And it even links it to a place, Pearl Harbor for 1941 and New York City for 9-11. So when if, if, if someone mentions, you could try this out, uh, if you know a cousin or a friend or if, you know, someone you might know going through seminary or Bible college, just, just toss out the date 70 AD. If you say 78, 70 AD to either a Bible nerd, theologian, or a Jewish person, they will immediately think of it like those first two dates in American history that I mentioned. Here's why. And by the way, the, the location, they will think temple. They will think Jerusalem and temple and date. Why? Because everything changed in 70 AD. What happened in 70 AD is the temple they are walking through and observing people bringing gifts to and discussing the architectural masterpiece to is, um, is, is, is uh, sacked. It's, it's, it's taken down. Rome sacks Jerusalem, uh, destroying this very temple that they're talking about. So that's going to happen in, in a few less than 40 years away. So what's the big deal about this? Well, the temple, remember, is a physical representation of the presence of God. So in the early days, God instructs his people to build the Ark of the Covenant. And they carried around this Ark of the Covenant, right? And then what happens is a permanent temple is first built um, in the heart of David and his son Solomon finishes it. And it's destroyed. It stands for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's destroyed. And on that same site, a second temple is built. And this is often called Herod's temple, which is curious, because it doesn't worship Herod. It just was built on his watch. And this is sort of the Legoland version of it. You see a guy off to to the side standing there. Um, This is a model of what it might have looked like um, back in the days of Jesus. So you can see why this is impressive. This is the place that Jesus would have driven out the frauds, right? This is the cleansing of the temple that he's been talking about. So what on earth does this have to do with me today? You see, people are bored with history because they think it doesn't relate to their life. Let's take 9-11 for a second. If we ever get to do air travel again, some of you are doing it, I know. But your life is affected by 9-11 whether you pay attention to it or not. Every single time you fly, the world changed after 9-11. And so it is with 70 AD. Believe it or not, in 70 AD, the events Jesus prophesied that came true in 70 AD affect your life today. So let's take a look at the beauty and the warning of this momentous event. Here's the beauty. The beauty is that God is working all things for good, and he knows the future. God is working all things for good, even destruction, even the destruction of a temple. This is like a headline Jesus is giving, and it would have been like this sneak peek that he's trying to offer. It would have been unthinkable to his hearers. This would have been something like three weeks before 9-11, a, head, a bold headline being run, uh, complete with details, about these two towers will now be in complete and utter uh, ruin, just obliterating blocks and blocks and blocks. Thousands will be dead. It's unthinkable for us as Americans 
to, to think that that would happen. And yet here it is being called out ahead of time. We are currently living through a year that is for the history books. Um, no one on earth would have thought it possible that when March Madness stopped, and they stopped the entire tournament, and we thought, man, that's a, that's a huge deal to a small segment of people who care about college basketball. And to think that that was just the tip of the iceberg to the utter world-changing events that have gone on since then. So what is God up to? What's below the surface of all this? What has God been up to? Let me take you back to the text for a moment. The destruction and pending persecution that would, that would occur in 70 AD forces people into a new era. God does this. In sending his beloved son, um, God has already inaugurated the um, you know, come and see worship of the Old Testament, which was, which was uh, defined by place. Um, it was heavy on form and details and regulations and locations. And by sending Jesus, he's, he's moved from an old covenant to a new covenant. A new covenant is go and tell, right? So we read the Old Testament. There's a lot. It's baby steps. It's sort of building in this presence of God dwelling with us. And then Jesus comes, and what happens? It's a go and tell uh, message, right? And, and what happens to the worship? It's, it's freed from the tether of location. We don't need to go to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land, to somehow connect with God. Where's the temple of God? Where's the Holy of Holies now? It's in men and women and children. Isn't that remarkable? Not in a temple made by hands, but in hearts made flesh by a living God. So that we now are the temple of the living God. That's this new thing that's been inaugurated. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why everything has changed. God is building something better and new and redemptive in place of the old. And God is certain of the future. Now, I don't want you to try to read this, but the word will is used 30 times in this one chapter. Don't marvel at this. There's little yellow highlights in there that you probably can't even see. But just on that one page alone, uh, we can see just the word will, will, will over and over and over. Don't count them. Just marvel at the certainty, the mastery that Jesus has on future events. And you know what that should do for us? You know what Jesus is saying to us? He's filling his followers with courage. Literally, it's meant to encourage you. That word means to pour courage into you. I've got this. I know what's coming. Not just with a donkey, not just with a fish with a coin in it, not just with an upper room, but with life-altering, history-altering world events that will occur. I've got this. I'm the true prophet from God. Okay, so there's beauty there. What about the danger lurking there? If you would imagine that there is uh, a lot of danger lurking in an apocalyptic type end times uh, portion of scripture, you would be right. There's lots of danger lurking here as well. In verse 7, the disciples respond to him with two questions. When is this going to happen? And what are the signs that are going to take place so we know it's happening? And Jesus per typical of Jesus, doesn't really answer them directly, but instead he prepares them with some warnings. And the warnings come in four do not statements. 
We're going to get into those in depth next week, but here they are as a little bit of a preview. Uh, we're going to call them rip currents to kind of fit with our, with our theme here, okay? So here are some rip currents that will suck you out to sea and to your death if you're not paying attention. Here they are. Number one, he says, don't be deceived. There's going to be lots of fakes, lots of false Christs that will come. That has been true to this day. In my lifetime, David Koresh in Waco, Texas, they do everything bigger in Texas, including nut jobs who say that they're Jesus and lead people to their death. Marshall Applewhite, he was on the front page. He was this guy. Black Nikes, Hale-Bopp Comet. Uh, he led a bunch of people in Southern California to their death. Jim Jones in Guyana. The phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid, is from him. He came uh, initially saying that he was proclaiming Jesus as Savior and then taking on that mantle himself. False Christ will come. That's the first one. Second one is this, don't follow them. So the first, do not. Do not be deceived. Secondly, don't follow them. We have a little saying around church here called Fake Dave. Fake Dave is a guy that created an email account with my mug and my little name next to it, and he began asking our staff to like do different things. Most of our staff immediately uh, saw it as a fake because it talked in very flowing pastorly language, like blessings, dear brother, or whatever. And John Giordano said, when it said, when it didn't say, hey, bro, I knew it wasn't you. So what we've said is, don't trust fake Dave. He's now actually gone beyond our staff. Uh, our staff. If you get an email or something from me and it says, hey, I can't talk, just trust me, just buy these things, there's people waiting, don't trust it. That's fake Dave, okay? Use voice authentication. That's called a phone call. And then we can, we can get to the bottom of it. So don't follow the fakes. Here's number three, don't be afraid. Jesus knows there are scary days ahead. I am here and I am in control. Here's the fourth one. Don't worry about your defense strategy. Don't worry about your speech. I'm going to give you the very words in the moment that you need them. You stay with me. You walk by faith, not by sight. Let me wrap up with this thought. This apparent disaster that's coming in the days of Jesus and this apparent disaster that we are living through, this works on both levels, is a God-ordained time for you to bear witness about me says Jesus. He says, I do my best work when times are the darkest. Therefore, church, don't clam up, don't shut up, don't run, don't hide. Do my bidding. Be my witnesses, Jesus says. I haven't lifted that command from you. I'm right here working to save people through you. How beautiful is this message for us right now? I've been challenging you since March, not to simply shelter in place, but to strive in place. God's given you a good work to strive at. Don't just get through this. Rest in the finished work of Christ so that you can strive at the good works that he's created you to do. God is not in a panic. He's given his body work to do. There is surprising joy and goodness and wonder and beauty lurking beneath both the very common repetitive moments in your life, such as offering time at church, as well as in earth-shaking, history-making moments. And conversely, there are rip currents that are sort of lurking just out of sight. 
We're going to move into a time of communion in just a moment. And as I thought about communion and tying into this passage, it dawned on me, if you want the ultimate example that there is more to the story going on than what you initially see, take the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ, if we put our minds on that, we begin to see if there was ever a concrete hope that time will be a tool for us to look back and be able to see the truth of what's really going on, the cross of Christ is it. It's an apparent defeat that's really an ultimate victory. It looks like the end, but it's actually just a brand new beginning. And it looks like death, but it is actually the ultimate never-ending, never-been-better, eternal life. Do you pray with me? God, I pray that, that people watching this, those who have a relationship with you, would just take a big sigh and rest in you. God, Sabbath is about rest. Sabbath is about tuning ourselves in to the most important things on this planet and what's really going on. I thank you, God, that our perfect understanding of all these events is not what's at stake. You understand them, and you have us, and that's enough. God, for those watching, for those participating in this, who may be checking you out, who may be soft toward you in the claims of of, of Jesus, or may be hardened toward you and antagonistic towards the claims of Christ, God, I pray that this season would stir things up from underneath, that they would, that they would see some things going on underneath the surface and, and ask questions. I pray, God, that you would lead them to your truth in your timing. Thank you for the freedom, the right we have to come at that at our own pace and to come to our own conclusions, God. We as a church, we as individuals, don't try to con- control that for other people. We release that right to you. God, as we sing right now, let it be more than a song. There's things going on in our hearts underneath the surface. God, as we partake and celebrate communion, as we give, Lord, I pray it wouldn't be left surfacey. I pray we would avoid the dangers that await us and instead enter in and participate in the beauty that you've created for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.